So let's talk about captive portals uh, and everything that's wrong with them. Um, uh, but first, you know, to kind of lay the groundwork, uh, guest Wi-Fi, you know, there are a lot of expectations there, especially with, you know, digital natives, people that do everything with their, their phones and computers and don't print or don't carry around papers and, or, you know, it's all digital. Guest Wi-Fi is an expected amenity there. And your business, your organization, your Airbnb, whatever it is, is judged based on the quality of your guest Wi-Fi. I can personally um, attest to, you know, scratching Airbnbs off my list of places to return where the, the Wi-Fi and internet performance was poor. And I don't like to fly on airlines that don't have Wi-Fi uh, and internet connectivity. It's really important in the 21st century and it's nice, it's welcoming. You know, when, we, uh, when we're mobile, when we're traveling, we're moving from islands of, you know, between islands of Wi-Fi is one way to think about it. Cellular connectivity in between. And when we get to that next location, we want to connect to Wi-Fi. And we want to connect to Wi-Fi because it's faster indoors than cellular. Uh, it's unmetered, all right? We're not chewing up our, our data cap or bumping into the limits of our, you know, quote unquote, unlimited data plan. Wi-Fi is better for battery life, right? So we prefer Wi-Fi, we seek it out. You know, there's a myth in the cellular world that Wi-Fi is used for cellular data offload. I think that's completely backwards. I think end users prefer Wi-Fi. It's actually the preferred path. We actively opt in to using Wi-Fi and then use cellular as the path of last resort. So that's how important guest Wi-Fi is. And uh, it can really, uh, provide, you know, an enhancement to that end user experience. But before you're completely connected in many places, you get, oh, you hit the stop sign, you hit a captive portal. And, uh, you know, this is <laughs> often marketed and sold as, hey, this is a way to provide a, you know, a, a branded um, sort of delightful experience to your customers and end users. I don't think many people perceive these that way at all. I think people are trying to get things done. They want to connect to the Wi-Fi and they don't appreciate showing up at Domino's to pick up a few pizzas and having them demand um, uh, that they give them their email address, their date of birth, their gender, I mean, what if the, the cashier at Domino said, yeah, Mr. Vada, I've got your pizza ready here. Uh, but first, how do you, what's your gender identity? <laughs> right? We, we don't ask for this kind of stuff in the real world. But for some reason, we're comfortable putting it on captive portals. And, you know, I think that's not a good thing. And this is actually kind of the best case scenario because we haven't, even discussed all the technology problems that captive portals cause. And so let's get into that. 
So I'll put this under the heading of the protocol problem. And, and the overriding problem here is there's no networking standard for captive portals. So um, there's no way for a captive portal um, to use a standard that all the devices support to inform them that, hey, we're blocking connectivity because I'm a captive portal here and you need to fill out this form. There's no standard for that. There's an RFC 8952 and you can look that up that you know maybe one day we'll address that. But I can promise that even if that does get uh, adopted widely, it won't be universal and there'll be plenty of old devices that don't support it. So what captive portals do, uh, since there isn't a, you know, a, a graceful way of um, interacting with clients, is they simply use what in the security world we call man-in-the-middle techniques. Or if you know they're done maliciously, they're actually attacks. A captive portal intercepts the client's DNS traffic and HTTP traffic and responds with by injecting its own IP and its own web server uh, into those uh, into those um, uh, into those requests. So and, and that's very problematic for a number of reasons. Uh, but even when it works, um, you know, it doesn't work for devices that don't have a human web interface. So right away, there's a huge amount of devices that, oh, we can't use this Wi-Fi network because there's no browser to click through the captive portal. But it also breaks connectivity. You've got apps running in the background, you've got your notifications streaming in, and now all that's getting blocked uh, because the captive portal um, needs to be addressed. So it's pretty ugly from a protocol perspective, right? We're just kind of stepping all over traffic, intercepting traffic, blocking traffic. The devices don't really know why. Uh, and there's no sort of standard for us to use to kind of improve the situation. It's only gotten worse too, as security has continually improved um, on the web. So a long time ago, the web was almost totally unencrypted, but now we use HTTPS uh, almost everywhere now. And that's a real problem because one of the reasons we use HTTPS is to uh, reduce our exposure to man-in-the-middle attacks. That's one of the primary purposes of using TLS security. So we're not exposed to man in the middle of attacks. And when we detect them, like this Chrome uh, error message shows, we should put up a scary warning. Your connection is not private. Attackers are trying to steal your information. Uh, some captive portals will show uh, visitors this message because the browser has detected a man in the middle attack. Now, there are some proprietary capture port portal detection uh, capabilities built into new operating systems. So iOS and Android, macOS and Windows, some browsers, they they have recognized this problem and built in some, some of their own, not standards-based, 
captive portal uh, detection schemes, but they're not perfect and they miss a lot. And these kind of messages still occur. Uh, and again, you know, if, if for unsophisticated devices, forget it. This is just going to uh, be broken. The bigger issue here is that if end users see this warning and they're uh, and they're led to believe, oh, that's just a captive portal, no big deal. But what happens when it's a real man in the middle attack? What happens when it's actually something malicious? Now we've established this bad habit of ignoring these kind of certificate errors, um, and that's a that's a really significant problem the captive portals are responsible for. But again, there are some new techniques with new operating systems for mitigating some of this. Um, you know, what's what's growing as a problem is uh, encrypted DNS. So one of the last protocols that people commonly use that that was unencrypted was DNS. And now more and more um, uh, DNS over HTTPS and DNS over TLS are going to be in, in use and enabled by default. iOS 14 introduced support for DNS over HTTPS. I think Firefox has made it, has enabled it by default. Chrome does something similar. And, um, you know, now you just get connectivity issues, right? You can't even make your HTTP request yet because your DNS failed. Uh, because you're doing it over an encrypted protocol and the captive portal can't handle it. So, you know, really bad end user experience. Now the end user just thinks, oh, your Wi-Fi doesn't work. Great. You know, I'm not coming back here anymore. And then the last thing, well, not the last thing actually, but from a protocol perspective, uh, a, a security issue here is MAC address randomization. To protect users' privacy, many operating systems now are, are, are using MAC address randomization. So every time they connect to a network, the device just makes up a new MAC address, it's random, and that way you can't be tracked um, as easily. Um, you know, as you're connecting to Wi-Fi and, and probing for Wi-Fi networks. Um, the problem here is captive, portal use, captive portals use MAC addresses as an identity. So you look like a new um, user every time, which is fine for a, a privacy perspective, but it also means that uh, if you disconnect and reconnect, you get the captive portal almost immediately. And this is a feature that's now supported by iOS 14, Android 10, and Windows 10. And I think it's just a matter of time before more operating systems enable this by default as well. And the last thing from a security perspective, and it's a big one, is you know the type of data captive portals are harvesting from end users is not the type of data we should be sharing. Here's some examples, one from uh, Purple, a captive portal um, vendor talking about the type of data you can get from your end users, date of birth, hometown, 
favorite music. I mean, I'm surprised Mother's Maiden Name isn't on this list, right? <laughs> These are the building blocks of identity theft. And it's true that, uh, fair enough, you know, they don't, these people don't have any malicious intent. I believe that. But if I have all this data out there and all these databases, if, if Domino's has my birth date and gender and Domino's gets hacked one day, those attackers that have that data can now use it for that purpose. So I, you know, we train end users not to give this data out unless they absolutely have to. And connecting to guest Wi-Fi should not be one of those times. So, uh, you know, my personal practice here is to always give out bogus data. And the reason for that is it obviously protects my own privacy but it also poisons their data set, right? Now they have, if enough of us did that, they'd all have uh, databases that were worthless and maybe they would stop being so intrusive. So let's walk through what the uh, user experience really is, right? When we take into account the socialist issues, the technology issues, the security issues, what does it actually feel like for an end user to interact with one of these systems? Well, first I connect to the Wi-Fi because I want to just, you know, look at Instagram for a couple minutes before my pizza is ready. Or maybe I've, I'm doing something time sensitive. I'm at the airport gate. I got to get this email out before I get on the plane. This is important for the company. Ah. But what is this captive portal doing here? I'm trying to get something done, and now you're, you know, you're interrogating me, right? This is, and you know, this has got your brand's logo all over it, and I'm, I'm feeling annoyed. Okay, and if I'm one of those unlucky users, now I get scary security warnings about, uh, my, you know, potentially being the victim of an attack. That's not good. Again, I'm associating this with your brand. And then you ask me for sensitive personal information. I don't want to divulge. Okay, now I'm really unhappy. And then, you know, we haven't talked about this yet, but you want me to pay extra. But I'm already a customer. This is just something you should do because, you know, you like your, your customers, you're paying customers, and you want them to have all the you know, the amenities that they expect. And then ultimately, you know, all too often, it doesn't even work. And what I mean by that is... Just, just great emoji use, by the way. I mean, just dynamite. Yes, thank you. <laughs> I really wanted to, uh, you know, show the emotions that go into these things. But yeah. you get through the captive portal, you put in your credit card or PayPal, you tell them your gender, and then you know, uh-oh, I still can't, like, the connectivity doesn't work, or for some reason, it's been 24 hours, and now I'm timed out for no reason, and I don't, my computer can't figure that out, but all my connectivity is failing, and I'm getting page load errors, and I can't connect half the devices I brought with me, because I don't have web browsers. It's just extremely frustrating, and um, and unreliable, and you know, for an end user, this is the feeling they're left with. And he's screaming at his phone, 
because of the technology issue he's experiencing on that phone, but he's associating that with your business, with your uh, sports team, with your airport, with your school, whatever it is where they're dealing with this. That's where the emotions are being targeted. So, you know, we can do a lot better. And, and I really agree with what Keith Parson says about guest Wi-Fi. Three things. It should be fast, it should be free, and it should be frictionless. So um, I think a lot of us out there are probably thinking, but wait, I have to do this. I'm responsible for everything that happens on my network, right? If, if somebody does something bad, I can get sued. Um, well, I, I'm not sure that's always the case, particularly in the US. I'm a network engineer, right? I'm not a lawyer, and you're probably not a lawyer either. So, you know, these are some reference, some reference material here, but, but actually, Don, I, I've got something new here. I thought we'd start this slide with a seven signal first. A haiku. Oh my goodness. I know. I'm not a lawyer. This is not legal advice. And it's not helpful. <laughs> really, I, I'm serious. Great Don't chair. go making legal arguments if you're not a lawyer. It's not going to help. But that said, we're all curious. We want to know what we're required to do, what laws are, are out there. So you know, with that disclaimer, here's some things I do know. So, do you have to use a captive portal? Well, in the US, there is no law that says you have to use a captive portal on your guest Wi-Fi. In fact, there, according to the Electronic uh, Frontier Foundation, uh, in the US, you know, Open wireless network operators have special protections because of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act safe harbor provisions and um, the Communications Decency Act, Section 230. Uh, very controversial section, by the way. A lot of uh, interest in that lately. But that protects you if you're kind of just, if you're just part of a network that provides transit, right? basically packets enter your network on one end and go out the other and you're not a content provider you're not um you, you know responsible or actively engaged in the content there then for the most part there's you're not liable for a lot in the u.s um in some countries that's different for example in russia uh, we have customers there and they tell us that they must log the identity of the guest users. They're required by law. They have to find a means to do that. So wherever you are in the world, you have local laws that apply, and that's what's important. So what about GDPR? What about uh, California's new Data Privacy Act? These are really complex laws, and I don't have the answer but I think it's unlikely that you're storing personal data, which is where GDPR really, you know, uh, gets its teeth. Um, but again, 
that's you know something definitely to talk through with with a lawyer. One thing that I think is relevant to bring up when we are talking to lawyers and having the legal discussion is that um, some of these, you know, one of the major uh, legal requirements that's believed that captive portals help with is simply identifying our guests. Who was on our network? Who were they? And when were they there? And what we can argue as, as technology experts is that, you know, most of the time, particularly in the U.S., the captive portals that we use don't have any means of validating the identity of the end user. They can do what I do, which is just put bogus info into the forms. They use a randomized MAC address, and it's trivial to do MAC spoofing. Just steal the MAC address of somebody else already on the network and, and, and start using that as your own. So, you know, if, if, if the legal requirement is to be able to answer a question like, hey, uh, last week at 2.30, uh, someone on our guest Wi-Fi did this terrible thing. And um, can you tell me with certainty who that person was? Right? That's, that's, what, that's the kind of scenario that we think a captive portal might help with. I think most of the time, the answer to that question is no. Maybe I have an idea of what their MAC address is if it wasn't randomized, but I don't know who they are. I just have a MAC. So that's something to, to keep in mind. And I know that's kind of helped uh, in some organizations make, the, make legal understand that maybe these things aren't performing the functions we think they are. So um, some internal strategies to disabling captive portals. And that's, that's really what I, I think is the best case scenario. Turn it off and, and find other ways to get your legal disclaimers out there. If you can do that in your, in your uh, regulatory environment. But the first one, you know, this is, uh, this is <laughs> actually one of my favorites. It's, you know, it's better to ask forgiveness sometimes than to ask permission. There's a good chance that, you know, if, if people asked uh, in your organization, who, who owns the Wi-Fi? Who's responsible for the Wi-Fi? Would they say your name? Right? That kind of makes it sound like you're in charge. It's your service, and you should be making the decisions about it. So just turn it off. Has anyone told you you have to be operating a, a captive portal? Probably not. So just turn it off if, if you think you can uh, get away with that, let's say. But you might have legitimate reasons. We talked about all the technology problems they, they disabled or they cause. So you can simply say, yeah, I turned off the captive portal because it was causing problems you know, ABC, it was breaking X, Y, and Z, so I had to disable it. And now our guests are having uh, a much better Wi-Fi experience. Um, you know, if you want to get buy-in, if you want to get permission, um, the important, probably most important 
tip I have is don't go to your legal department, your compliance uh, uh, department with legal arguments. Don't send screenshots of the last slide I showed you to them. <laughs> right? This is this is akin to people showing up to you, the network engineer, with a problem and they think they have the solution. And would you please just do what they're asking? You know that how often are they right? You know, they probably actually don't understand the problem very well. The solution is probably the wrong one. You know, it's just, you gotta untangle all that for them, but for them to even kind of understand what's going on, right? Lawyers are just like engineers. Bring us your problems and we'll we'll fix it. We'll find the, the right solution. Don't bring us solutions to problems, though. So. I do and, that to my doctor all the time, too. <laughs> oh, exactly. I, I That's Googled a great this. example. <laughs> That's a great example. Hey, Doc, I, I, I Googled this. Can you give me this prescription? <laughs> And, he, yep. and and she says, well, hold on. <laughs> Tell me what's <laughs> wrong first and let's have a chat. Uh, and and I would say, you know, uh, it's important when you're, if you're approaching compliance, don't ask them if it's okay to remove a legal disclaimer. The first problem with that is lawyers care about legal risk. That's one of their priorities. They don't see the whole picture of end user experience and all of the things we talked about, technical issues, right? Their priority is legal risk. Should we remove a disclaimer? No, of course not. We should have more from a lawyer's perspective. And if you ask them it's okay, then you put them in the driver's seat. Now they're um, in charge of that decision. What I would suggest is instead of asking, can we ask how we can achieve a, this worthy outcome, right? So here's an example. The guest Wi-Fi experience at Disney World, Walmart, Whole Foods, in Major League Baseball Stadium stands out because their customers aren't frustrated by cumbersome captive portals that result in frightening security warnings and broken connectivity. What can we do to accomplish that here? So you've shown the direction you wanna go, You've given some examples of some Fortune 500 companies that have already gotten there. You've 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 you know hinted at the problem, scary security warnings, broken connectivity, and now you've said, "Help us get there. How do we get there?" And that that's a completely different conversation. Oh, okay. Well, here's the, the obstacles, and here's how we can get around it. Right. That's a better internal strategy. Okay, so what are some alternatives uh, to captive portals? Well, I think, you know, probably the most obvious is just to print your legal disclaimers and post them at entrances. We don't require anybody to sign a piece of paper with their birth date on it before they come into a restaurant to, to agree not to smoke. We just put a sign up that says no smoking in here. Okay, you're informed. That's our policy. There it is. We've done a we've made a reasonable effort to inform you of it. And now we do that with a lot of things. A, a uh, um, example there in the top right from Kaiser Permanente, a, a healthcare system here in the U.S. And they're concerned about uh, the privacy 
issues with taking photos in, in hospitals. So they have a policy about, oh, if you're taking a selfie, make sure, you know, no one else, no patients, there's no personal information, right? This is a, a serious risk if, you know, patients are pulling their phones out in, in the middle of a hospital. So they post that. They post that policy out there where everyone can, can see it. They've made a reasonable effort to inform people about it. We do this now with COVID restrictions. Don talked about how, you know, things are tightening up here again in the U.S. as the Delta variant spreads more. And now, you know, I, I, we were traveling last week, you know, across the country. Different places have different requirements, different restrictions, different company policies about what you have to do, about social distancing, wearing a mask, um, so on and so forth, stand here, stand there, all those things. And how do they inform the public about them? It's right there on the door. There's a sign that just explains what's going on and what you're required to do uh, to enter here. We can do the same thing with Wi-Fi captive portals. We, we don't have to uh, uh, break connect Wi-Fi connectivity to present those legal disclaimers. We can print it up and post them at the entrances of our facilities. We can print them on the back of tickets if you sell tickets. We can include them in day, game day programs, right? If you're going to the football game, you don't have to deal with a captive portal. Uh, you, you just put it on the, the back of the program there. Really, you know, it, we're talking about uh, being, you know, digital first organizations. That involves a lot of, you know, other web re registration forms and emails and other types of interactions with customers and guests. Those are all opportunities to share our legal disclaimers about using the Wi-Fi network. So consider all points of guest interaction, physical and digital as opportunities to share those legal disclaimers, those acceptable use policies, et cetera, um, before using a captive portal, I would say. And if you absolutely have to use a captive portal, right? Somebody, it's just, you have to because of the strict requirements you have from the laws in your country or company policy, you just have to, you can't get out from under it. Well, first I would uh, advocate for never timing end users out. They go through the captive portal once and they never see it again for the rest of the existence of that device. That's, that's nice. Of course, MAC address randomization um, is a challenge for that. Make it simple, make it one click. Oh, you know, we're annoyed because we, we get this captive portal because we're trying to get things done, but we just click accept, it goes away and we're, we're you know, we're back in business. We haven't, you know, the, the, the emoji escalation hasn't quite, you know, reached the boiling point yet. Test your captive portal with new clients, operating system updates, uh, captive portal software updates. You got to test this stuff because as security increases, as captive portal detection techniques change and, and mature, 
these things break all the time. And you want to know where it works, where it doesn't work, and, and who's going to be affected by that. And then if you can, bypass the captive portal entirely for those you know, classes of devices that don't have a web browser, that don't have a human uh, web interface. Uh, Amazon Kindle, smartwatches, gaming devices, IoT, fitness devices. You know, this is a exploding um, segment of devices that simply can't use your Wi-Fi at all if there's a captive portal. And so one of the ways we can bypass those is by building in uh, uh, Mac OUI whitelists, you know, using the, the OUIs of uh, these device manufacturers. So they simply just skip uh, the captive portal entirely. Okay, with that, Don, I think we've got maybe a, a minute or two for some Q&A. Sounds good, Jim. Thanks for the presentation. Just awesome as usual. Uh, we got a lot of, of feedback, a lot of welcomes for Heather. Um, certainly do appreciate those. Um, and while you all are um, formulating your questions, I'll I'll go through here and start asking the ones that have already um, been dropped in. Um, Carlos had a question: uh, Would captive portals using HTTPS redirects at least provide some protection from MITM attacks on just HTTP traffic? Yeah, so that's a complex subject. I think it depends on uh, the level of security being used in HTTPS. So I think if you're using, I want to say the protocol is HSTS, then you won't be able to do an HTTPS redirect. It'll just break. Um, so, you know, it's, I think we're fighting a losing battle, right? Because we're trying to use the same techniques that malicious attackers use. And there's this whole security industry that's working to get rid of those vulnerabilities. So um, it's, but it's something to consider, yes. All right, I've got another one here from Nikita. Um, uh, Nikita's joining us from Russia. We've got a great partner over there called CompTech, Nikita, just to let you know. But we've got a question here. A typical way to establish a guest identity in Russia is SMS authentication. Do we need a captive portal for that? And if not, uh, what are the alternatives? And I know you dropped some into your presentation there, but maybe there's something else you want to touch on. Yeah, and I think Russia is a special case, right? Because you have to, I, I believe by law, you have to log the identity of your guest users. I don't see a good way around that. I think, you know, probably SMS authorization via a captive portal is probably the best worst uh, option <laughs> because it's not just fill out the form with, with your name and address, right? Because that could all be bogus. So you need to do some validation of that. I mean, if SMS validation, you know, is acceptable, I'd probably be, use that because what are the alternatives? A, a background check, a credit check, just to get on the guest Wi-Fi? I mean, so I'm afraid that's probably the where you're going to have to stay. Makes sense. Uh, comment uh, from Keith Parsons. Uh, love that last comment to not use the previous slide with the legal department. Yes. <laughs> Probably that can't is... uh, reiterate that enough. 
Absolutely. That is not legal advice. It's just a, some references for your own education. Uh, let's see. Uh, Olivier, can you use WPA2 on a guest network with Captive Portal or does it need to be open? That's a great question. Actually, you know, it, you, it does not have to be open. You can use WPA2 or WPA3 encryption uh, or security on a network with a captive portal. The challenge is though, they have to get through that layer two security first, that layer two authentication will say either the, they either have to know the PSK or have a set of .1x credentials, and then they get the captive portal after that. So, uh, but you can use those in, in combination, yes. So, and, and in fact, you know, one, one thing, um, interesting technology that's out there that's not widely supported is Hotspot 2.0, which actually, or Passpoint as it's now called, which actually uses WPA2 and WPA3 enterprise encryption and actually has kind of a nicer way to present a captive portal. They call it the online signup uh, server. And it is uh, standards-based, but the, the support for it is extremely limited. Very cool. Um, thank you, Jim, uh, for that response. And one time for probably one last question here from John. And there's a, a couple here back-to-back. So let me ask the first one and see where that takes us. And it, it may uh, bring us into a rabbit hole, but uh, it says, how are these companies like Walmart, Disney, et cetera, uh, are doing guest access? What's their secret? Yeah. So I, I uh, you know, I can't um, share specifics about them, but I can talk about just as being a, a, a customer at Disney World recently, I think I got, um, you know, five or six emails and had to do a lot of web registration and fill out a bunch of forms before I ever left. And so those were probably the places, you know, the, the acceptable use policy was buried in all the legal boilerplate that I saw there. Um, and I know other organizations have been swayed by the fact that the captive portals they were using really don't give them the, um, uh, the identity log or store of their guests that they believed it had. So I think those are the two approaches that have been effective with those really large companies.